0: So great to be with you, and I have similar feelings about our cohort time. It was amazing to get to know Peter, and he was a real blessing to me. And I really enjoyed meeting a lot of the ladies here at our retreat. It was really just, you're a super incredible, dynamic group of people, and I'm, I'm just honored to be with you. So... Some of you may know this story if you're a history buff, but in the 19th century, Napoleon Bonaparte was trying to like, take over the world, remember? And uh, he had this idea. He was doing really well. He had taken over a lot of Europe, and he was sort of the greatest emperor France had ever seen. And then he had this idea that, you know, we need to take over Russia. Well, if you've ever watched The Princess Bride, you know this is one of the two classic blunders never start a land war in Russia. But unfortunately, Napoleon, I mean in in Asia, but Napoleon had never seen the Princess Bride, and so he told the French citizens, like, we're going to go take over Russia. This is the last thing we need to do. And he took half a million troops, almost his entire army, and marched over the mountains towards Russia. Well, the land, climate, and culture of Russia is quite different than that of France. It is a lot more austere. It is a lot colder, and the people are kind of tougher. And so they, <laughs> so they, the French didn't really know what they were getting into. The Russian Tsar was like, there's no way they can feed a half, a mil, half a million people. So here's what we're going to do, everyone. Just burn the fields just burn them, and everyone retreat into the, the, the inland part of Russia. And so as the troops come along, they're expecting to eat from the, the fields and the farms, and everything is burned, and so they're spending all this time like scrounging in the ground, looking for roots and berries and hunting, and they're going really, really slow. And then the czar says, let's just go. A little further. And so they keep having a march and march and march, and they're, they're, it's getting colder and colder, and they finally reach the Russian army. They have this brief bloody battle, and it's not very um, amazing. And then Napoleon's like, Well, it's getting cold, let's turn around and go try to just take over Moscow. But they burned down Moscow also, and all the food. And so when they get there, there was nothing. Well, by the winter, there were only 27,000 men left out of half a million. Everyone was starving to death. They were dying, and they were freezing to death. And so finally Napoleon had to say, well, we should just retreat. And most of the people didn't make it home on that long march back to France. Napoleon um, had all the right right training, you know. He was a military genius, but his ideals did not match the reality of the world. And so he made this classic blunder, and his followers paid, the mis- paid for his mistake. If you're going to follow a visionary leader, it's important to know whether or not that leader's ideals are actually achievable in the real world. Christians, for Christians, perhaps the most um, visionary aspect of our leaders' ideals are the ones that we heard this morning. Jesus is teaching to turn the other cheek, to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. The famous atheist Bertrand Russell once said about those teachings, the Christian principle love your enemies is good, there's nothing to be said against it except That it is too difficult for us to practice sincerely. Russell admits that it would be nice to live in a world in which people turn the other cheek and love their enemies, but he says, look, on the ground, uh, no one can really do that. He's kind of accusing Jesus of the same mistake as Napoleon, right? You have this great vision, but you don't understand the lay of the land. You don't know how this is going to play out. And You know, this is one of the most famous passages of Christianity. It's the one people kind of point to as like what makes Christianity morally different than other religions. Um, We're supposed to love our enemies, but also it's um, one of the passages that everyone says, but no one takes it too seriously, right? You're not really supposed to do that, are you? Um, It's nice to love your enemies, but Jesus doesn't know my enemies, right? Like (laughs) it doesn't work on them. And um, we tend to kind of be like these French soldiers who sort of stay, stay under their bre- breath. You know. Go ahead, Napoleon. See how marching on Russia works for you. I am going to hang back and watch, right? Okay, Jesus, go ahead. Love your enemies. Um, I'll see how that turns out. I'm watching. However, like the rest of his sermon, Jesus' teaching here on loving our enemies is not at all just a casual suggestion or a lofty ideal. And he's not at all naive about the possible outcomes um, of of this this command. It's with a stark realism and the conviction that ultimately brings him to the cross that Jesus gives us our marching orders. Go and love your enemies. In response to a world that is ruled by hatred, violence, and revenge, Jesus calls his disciples to a battle strategy that primarily works to witness to our hope in the resurrection. And he does this, he calls us to these surprising acts, unexpected acts of love for our enemies. Only self-giving love can prove to the world the message of the cross, that love is stronger than death and that good is more powerful than evil. Only love can win the ancient wager between God and the devil that something is better than nothing. Love of enemy is the radical way of life that Jesus came to the earth to demonstrate. And as the Apostle Paul puts it, you know God proves His love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Paul later says, "We were enemies of God when He called us." Jesus' choice to lay down his life for his enemies was not passive, it wasn't one of defeat, but instead it was the deepest expression of human freedom and dignity ever seen on the face of the Earth. And when we come into that freedom and restored dignity of a life in Christ Jesus, Jesus says to us, come march with me. Love your enemies, even if you have to go into Russia. As beautiful as the actions of love appear against the sort of canvas of our ugly and often hateful world, people still want to know, like, does this Work in real-world terms: Is love of your enemy effective? Does it actually change things about the evil and problems in the world? Sociologists and historians tell us that sometimes the tactics of Jesus, this nonviolent resistance, is really effective. Uh, in the 20th century, we had several amazing figures that tried this on a big scale. Right, um, Cory Ten Boom. Uh, Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr. in our own country, and to some degree, their nonviolent resistance did in fact achieve their political ends. Uh, They were able to do some of the things they wanted to do. Um, However, one needs only to look at the rising number of Christian martyrs throughout the world and the near extinction of the church in places like Iraq to see that very often... Nonviolence just results in our vulnerability, our death, our oppression, um, and that those who who refuse to take the world's tactics of defense often um, do not end up reigning in the world. So the empirical data isn't easy to read as far as like is this a good political strategy? However, for Jesus, the real measure of the effectiveness of his battle strategy is not the increase of peace on earth in kind of visible terms, but the establishment of the kingdom of God, the witness to the resurrection. And there are, of course, enormous political implications for Christians in these teachings. Um, But the primary purpose of Jesus' teachings about loving our enemies is actually um, spiritual and personal the interactions between people, the freedom of actual human spirits. And the outcomes of spiritual things are not easy to measure. They're hidden behind the mystery of the souls of other people and the mysteries of God that we can't clearly always see. And so we, we obey them, kind of trusting in God as our spiritual savior, whether we can measure their outcomes in worldly terms or not. Risk-benefit analysis aside, though, the scriptures do offer a sort of rationale for why radical love of our enemies is God's chosen strategy in the world. And this morning, I'd like to look at three of those reasons. First of all, throughout scripture and throughout church history, we see that responding to our enemies in love rather than retaliation affords God this, this opportunity to show forth his glory in a way that we can't see when we like rely on our own power and abilities. Secondly, responding to our enemies with love uh, helps us in a way that teaches our hearts to be more like Jesus. And so one of the reasons we turn the other cheek is for the salvation of our own souls. And finally, uh, though there's no sort of concrete sociological data on this, we see in our everyday lives that when we love our enemies, sometimes it opens up an opportunity for spiritual transformation in them. And those who are our enemies become our brothers and sisters in Christ. And in this way we see the kingdom is growing. So turning first to the, um, the idea of turning the other cheek for the glory of God. The Old Testament has a lot of remarkable stories that sort of prefigure Jesus' teaching. Like today we heard from Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself. And of course Jesus extends this, love your enemy. But we see examples of loving your enemy in the Old Testament. It's already there. One of my favorites is the story of Elisha the prophet uh, when the king of Syria comes to attack him and then that army of angels appears and defends him. Do you remember this story? It's a fun one. Um, So... So, um, Elisha, uh, you know his his servants, like, what are we gonna do? This whole army is coming to get us. And Elisha says, "Lord, open his eyes." And suddenly he sees this huge that the whole the whole hillside is just filled with angelic beings. And Elisha says, "Lord, strike them with blindness." And then he goes out in the midst of his enemies and says who are you looking for? We're looking for Elisha the prophet, but we can't see anything. And he says, come, I'll I'll show you where he is. And he leads all the people into Samaria where the king of Israel and all his army is waiting. And they're right there in the center. And then Elisha says, open their eyes. And they realize they're totally surrounded by their enemies. And the king of Israel says, should we kill them all? And Elisha says, no, you wouldn't do that if you captured them in a military battle. Instead, put a feast before them. Give them something to drink. Let them eat. And it's this incredible sort of actualization of the line in the Psalms, you, you prepare a feast before me in the presence of my enemies. And they eat, and then Elisha says, let them go. And they leave, and the writer of Second Kings says that they never come back. Um, how often when we are confronted by our enemies do we forget that there is a spiritual army standing by our side? And we know that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but we are incredibly given to the weakness of only seeing what's right before us, right? And being terrified. And yet, if we are are Christians, we believe that the Lord fights for us. And when we trust him to do that, the Lord gets incredible glory, Remarkable stories like that one um, like in, are not just Bible stories. The Lord is delivering his people all over the world, all the time, every day. Um, we don't often get to see that uh, if we live a sort of safe and comfortable life, but many of our Christian brothers and sisters do not. And they see the Lord fight for them. Um, one of the regions where... Um, Christians are suffering a lot in the world, is northern Nigeria. And I I know there's some Nigerian brothers and sisters here. Um, And since 2014, uh, we estimate 27,000 Christians have been martyred in northern Nigeria um, by um, Muslim militant groups like Boko Haram and the Fulani Herdsmen. And again and again, our brothers and sisters keep being asked to renounce their faith, and most of the time they say, no, I will not do it, and they they lay down their lives for Jesus. And um, the vast majority of them are paying the ultimate price in these scenarios. But sometimes, the Lord kind of peels back the curtain and shows what the spiritual battle is, like in the real world, what's going on in the spiritual realm. About ten, 10 months ago, Boko Haram attacked a village of about 500 Christians, and most of them got away, but they were able to capture 76 of them and hold them captive. And the first, the first day of their captivity, they, the militants identified what they thought were like four leaders of that group, uh, four, four men, and they took them before the group and said, you know, will you deny Christ? And they said no, and they were martyred. And about a week later, after being in captivity for a whole week, they found those four men's wives. And they said, Tomorrow, unless you deny your faith in Jesus, we are going to kill all of your children. And so it was just this horrible, you know, just just unimaginable uh, situation. And the mothers were up late into the night praying and crying out to the Lord, Lord, what should we do? Like, we, we don't want our children to die. We don't want to deny you. What are you really asking us to do this? And as they were praying, some of their children ran into the place where they were, and they said, it's okay. Jesus has appeared to us. He is going to rescue us. You don't need to worry. Don't deny him. So in the morning, the militants came out, and they lined the children up against a wall, and they pulled their guns up, and they said, will you deny Jesus? And the mother said, no, we will not. Jesus is our savior. And they prepared to begin shooting the children. The youngest was four. And all of a sudden, as like, at the very last second, the, several of the men that were holding the guns began shouting, snakes, snakes, snakes. And there was these poisonous snakes just all over them. And a few of them fell down dead immediately. And others began running and running and running um, into, in, into the jungle. And the, um, one, of, one of the captives reached down for the gun of a man who had just fallen dead and was getting ready to shoot one of the men running away when a little girl, about four years old, went up to him and said, Stop. You don't need to do that. And he, and he looked at her and he said, Can't you see The men in the white robes all around us who are fighting for us? God got the glory in that scenario. And I actually did a little bit of, you never know when you hear these stories, I did a little digging and I asked some Nigerians and they said, yeah, this is a true story. Um, we've, We've met these people. Um... But this wouldn't have happened, right, if there had been retaliation, if there had been this other tactic, but God came in and rescued them. Well, if every story of attacks on Christians and every interaction with our enemies ended with this kind of dramatic salvation, no one would ever question Jesus' teachings on turning the other cheek, right? We'd be like, of course, God's going like, to send the angels and the snakes, Um <laughs> But the reality that there's been 27,000 martyrs in northern Nigeria and that you and I all have enemies who make our lives very difficult um, proves that not every scenario goes that way. Many times our nonviolent response will make us look weak and cost us very dearly. Often, this side of the resurrection, we're not going to see exactly how God gets the glory when we choose love over vengeance. And yet, for the sake of our hearts and theirs, Jesus still calls us to love our enemies. The resurrection proves once and for all that love is stronger than death. And Jesus' practical instructions on loving our enemies are his battle strategy for these little personal interactions that we have all the time to bring the good news to the world. Jesus begins laying out how this is going to look um, with his um, famous reversal of The Old Testament basis of justice. He says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. In the time of Jesus, being struck on the right cheek was the ultimate insult. It wasn't something that happened between kids on the playground, Um, it was a very precise social thing that happened between superiors and inferiors parents and their children, slave owners and their slaves. Um, Let me explain it to you. Peter told me this would be okay. I'm going to demonstrate with Peter. Um, So so in their culture, um, and some cultures, uh, many cultures in the world still today, people did not use their left hands for anything but like bathroom stuff. So you don't have a left hand. You only have a right hand, okay? Well, if I'm going to punch someone with my right hand, um, I would typically... Punch them on their right cheek, right, or their, their left cheek. Left cheek, sorry, their left cheek. But if I, so if I'm going to hit their right cheek, I'm backhanding them, right, like this. Okay, that stay right there. That is a huge, that's a huge insult, and the and the meaning of it was humiliation, right? Not just injury, but humiliation. This way of saying like I am the dominant one here. You need to do what I say. Get in line. Um, when when you when you when you receive an injury from someone with power over you, you don't often actually have the opportunity to retaliate back directly, right? But we all know people still find ways to retaliate. This is the classic situation of the teacher who's too harsh to her students and then they put honey in her chair. Or like the father who's too harsh with his child and they happen to throw a a ball through the window. Or like putting spyware on your boss's computer or something, right? So like, <laughs> that's <it's> kind of like... <laughs> no, <laughs> I've heard about it. Um, <laughs> I don't know how to do that. Uh, <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so uh, But Jesus is saying, instead of these little inter- insurrections, these ways of getting back at your superiors, um, turn to them your other cheek also. And so, that's if I'm if I'm backhanding Peter on the right cheek, and he turns to me the other also. Now I, I have to I have to punch him, mm. and if I punch him, okay, you can sit down. Thank okay. you. Um, if I punch him, he, um, he's my um, he's my equal, and my dignity is asserted. He has to make a choice between either continuing to abuse me as an equal or recognizing what he is doing and stopping. Jesus' directions are one of vulnerable dignity. It's not saying just lay down and die, right? But rather stand with your dignity as a person who has made in the image of God and look back with love and dignity at your enemy and let them understand the fullness of the choice that they're making. When we do that, it protects our hearts. We remember who we are. And what's really remarkable is when you choose to love your enemies, it's typically not by actually turning your other cheek, right? But um, it isn't the case. Bertrand Russell is wrong. It isn't the case that you find you just can't do it. Actually, if you have Christ in you, it is in those moments that the Holy Spirit fills you, and you find that you can't explain where this love is coming from, but that the fact that it's there proves to you in a way you didn't know before that God is real. When you take Jesus at his word and you actually try the things he asks you to do, um, you don't find yourself in more doubt you find that this is exactly where you discover that Jesus is real, and he's there. And you're, and you're filled with faith. And so this, this is what happens when we try this. Um, giving our shirt also, going the second mile, they work in similar ways. Uh, both of these actions vulnerably reveal that we are children of God. Um, and they give our enemies this opportunity to change their minds about what they're about to do. Um, in Jesus' time, uh, Roman soldiers, the Roman law said that any Roman soldier could p- pull any per- member of the Roman Empire um, uh, just off the street and demand that they carry their gear for a mile. So this would be like if you get pulled over by the police and they get in your car and they say, drive me to McDonald's, um, <laughs> and it would be totally illegal. And, and of course, there was a lot of abuse that went on with this, but the law also required that they had to stop after one mile. And so, for one mile, you have no choice. There's nothing to protect you in the law. You are at the hands of your oppressors. But then, what what Jesus is saying is, and then, say, and would you like to go get some gas also? Can I take you to the grocery store? Um, Suddenly, your freedom, as a person filled by the Holy Spirit and full of the love of God, gets to manifest I understand that this is the law, but I'm going to take you another mile further and walk with you and tell you about Jesus. And when you say, why are you still walking with me? You say, well, I want to bless you today. Why? It doesn't always happen, but these kinds of acts of love often have these transformative effects on our enemies. Um... Many years ago now, my husband and I lived in China when we were um, newlyweds, and we taught grad school, and one of my students, her English name was Joyce, uh, she, she was really curious about Christianity, and she said, you know, before coming to grad school, I was working in a hospital, and there were some Christians, some Chinese Christians in my hospital, and I really hated them. They were always doing these things for people. They would, like, give away our old supplies to the homeless, and they would treat people even if they couldn't pay the fees. They would, go, they would leave the hospital to go check up on patients, and it just really disturbed me. And she said, and I was really mean to them, because what, what they were doing just drove me crazy. And she said, I would, like... I would say nasty things to them. I wouldn't share information with them. I would like, purposefully try to sabotage them. But no matter what I did, they kept being kind to me. I got sick, they took my shifts. And when I came back to work, they said, no need to repay us. They invited me over to their home. They would like say encouraging words when I looked disgruntled. And, and over time, I just became very, very confused. And finally, I began to wonder... Is Jesus Christ real? Could God even help a person like me? Joyce ended up giving her life to the Lord. I got to finish the, the, the deal, but it was these Chinese Christians that opened the way because they chose to keep loving her. Loving our enemies does not always result in their conversions. We love because Christ first loved us. We love to testify to the kingdom against the hatred and the greed of the world. However, if Jesus' battle plan is indeed to win the hearts of humanity back to the love of God, love of our enemies is in fact the most effective plan. We love our enemies because we remember that at all times, They are our potential brothers and sisters in Christ. They are those for whom Christ died. And we are no different. In this way, God always gets the glory. We are always free. And sometimes, by God's grace, even our enemies become the children of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence around the world, for the way that you stand with us when we suffer. We thank you that when we we step out in faith and choose not to defend ourselves, that we find that you are there, and in life or in death, we are safe in you. Lord, I pray for each person here as we remember our enemies. Those who, for reasons we don't always understand, are filled with hatred towards us. Lord, give us the strength and the faith to follow your marching orders. Give us creativity, the kind of creativity Jesus demonstrated in these teachings, to find ways to turn the other cheek, to show both our love for them and the dignity of Christ in us. And Lord, we pray for this baby who's about to be baptized. Lord, we thank you for his parents and the radical thing that they are doing as they remove him spiritually from an -an eye-for-an-eye world and give him to the, the kingdom that loves its enemies. Bless him, Lord, and let your spirit empower him throughout his life to pick up his cross and follow you. In your holy name we pray, amen.